We're going to look at Acts chapter 15 today. So if you would turn there with me. I bought a cheap watch at Target for $20. And I looked at it a while ago and there's all kinds of water in there. So if it gets to uh, 11.15 and I'm still preaching, you can stop me at that point. I'm sure I'll finish. 12.15. Oh, it's already passed. You can stop me now. Oh, it's 11.30. Is it 11.30? Almost. Okay. Good. I'm worried that water's going to drip down and that's going to be the end of it. That's what you get for buying a cheap watch. (laughs) I did. I don't know what happened. I'm not sure what happened to that watch. All right, Acts 15. This is, uh, of course, we've we've, uh, spent some time in the first 14 uh, verses, uh, first 14 chapters uh, in the the past, and we took a break uh, for the summer. Uh, last we heard uh, back in the, the beginning of summer was that uh, Paul and Barnabas had gone on a long missionary journey sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, they came back to Antioch rejoicing in what the Lord had done through them. Now some problems arise in the church and we, we reach a, a, a watershed moment in the history of Christianity. This is really an important uh, chapter and what is being uh, discussed, debated, and decided here in Acts 15 uh, has had an impact throughout the centuries. So let's now read and hear God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I'll just stop and say, they came down to Antioch. That's where Paul and Barnabas were, and the church there had grown rather large and became the center of missions. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and the apostles and the elders uh, about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by, the mouth, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no dis- distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading, among, uh, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. As we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, they were, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. Who would like to wear a yoke around their neck for the rest of their lives? Now, a yoke, uh, as you probably know, is a bar usually made out of wood that is attached to the necks of two work animals, usually oxen. And uh, it's, it's put there so that they can pull a heavy load or a plow and do work on the farm. Of course, no one wants to wear a yoke around their necks. That's it's kind of ridiculous to think about. But some people uh, wear a metaphorical yoke around their necks. Often when people think of becoming a Christian, they think it means adopting certain behaviors or a certain lifestyle. When you speak to someone about becoming a Christian, it is probable that in their minds they are thinking that you are telling them to clean up their act. They're probably thinking that you're telling them to reform their behavior in some way, to become a moral person, even though you probably aren't saying that at all. You think, they think you're telling them to be good, well, maybe you are one of these people here today. Maybe you are here thinking, well, I'm, I'm here because I'm trying to be a Christian. I am trying to be a good person. I want God to like me 
So I'm coming to church because that's what Christians do and, and I want to be one. I want to go to heaven when I die. And so I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to clean up my act, clean up my life. I am 100% certain that there are people here who are thinking this way. And I would call that group of people the self-improvers. People who are looking to their own efforts to improve their lives and to be good so that God can accept them. Well, if that is you here today, now I'm not saying that I know specific people. I'm not pointing any fingers here, but in a crowd this size, certainly there are people who have fallen into this way of thinking. It's a, it's a typical way of thinking. If you are one of these people, I've got some bad news for you because uh, according to the Bible, that is the wrong way to think and the wrong way to go about Christianity. Your efforts are useless to save you. You are metaphorically strapping a yoke to your neck that you are unable to bear. You're doomed to failure if you continue thinking this way. You will try and try to be good. You will labor and work hard. That, and you may have some degree of success, but you will never be perfect enough for God. You'll never achieve that standard. You can't make yourself clean enough for a holy, perfect God. So that, that's the bad news. But I've got good news for you if you're one of these self-improvers, and I'll tell you in a moment. But there's another group here today as well, and I am certain that there are people like this here today. Again, not because I'm pointing any fingers, but in, in a group this size, there are people who fall into this way of thinking, myself included. This group I call the miserable Christians. You have forgotten that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have subtly fallen into thinking that God accepts you because you are a good person, and you are a good person. And you think because of your faithfulness to the Christian lifestyle that that makes you a Christian, and that's why God likes you. But there's that gnawing inside that you're not quite good enough. You can never know if you've quite done enough. You wished you were a better Christian. And you don't feel secure in Christ. And because of that, you lose your joy. The ladies are studying Galatians. And that's exactly what happened to the Galatians. They forgot about salvation by grace. They went about it as if it were by works. And Paul says in the NIV version... What happened to all your joy? I'm going to ask you that. Where's your joy? You've lost it because you're going about it thinking that it comes by works, not by grace. These miserable Christians are described by Richard Loveless. If you have an outline, I put this quote there for you so you can read along uh, in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life. He says, Those who are not secure in Christ cast about for spiritual life preservers with which to support their confidence. And in their frantic search, they not only cling to the shreds of ability and righteousness they find in themselves, but they fix upon their race, their membership in a party, their familiar social and ecclesiastical patterns, and their culture as means of self-recommendation. 
The culture is put on as if it were armor against self-doubt, but it becomes a mental straitjacket which cleaves to the flesh and can never be removed except through comprehensive faith in the saving work of Christ. Like the self-improver, the miserable Christian has strapped a metaphorical yoke to their neck. There's no joy in it, and you're chained to the misery of your own hypocrisy. The only people who want to be around you are the other miserable hypocrites. I know this because I used to be one of them, and I can fall back into that any time. And you don't mind being with the other miserable hypocrites because you only want to be around the other miserable hypocrites because everybody else that's not one of the miserable hypocrites is not good enough to be with you because they don't look like you or act like you or are self-righteous as you are. This is exactly, as I said before, what happened to the Galatians. Well, there's good news for you today as well. Now, the question that this, this passage answers for us is what makes a Christian a Christian? That's what they were debating in Acts chapter 15. And it's a question we must keep asking ourselves every day and not only asking, but answering. We need to know the answer to that question. We need to ask ourselves and answer it every day. Or if you'd prefer, and some of you I've heard say this, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it. There's no more important question. What makes a Christian a Christian? And we often forget the answer to it, even though maybe in our minds we know the answer, but in our practice we forget the answer. And that's why we must keep asking and answering it. Now in Acts 15, let's turn our attention to the text here. There's what is described in verse 2 as no small dissension and debate. It's kind of a nice way of saying they got in a real, real good argument about this thing. The center of Christianity was shifting uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch. It, it was spreading, really. And Antioch was becoming a center for Christianity uh, in that extended Mediterranean world. And so when Paul and Barnabas were sent out from that church, you know, they went out across the northern Mediterranean and spread the gospel to all the Gentiles living out there. We read about that in the preceding chapters. Many pagan Gentiles were converted by Christ and, the, and, and his gospel in those chapters. Before this time now, this is the important part to remember, before this first missionary journey especially, the overwhelming majority of Christians were Jews, people who were Jewish and they had converted to Christianity. These Jews recognized that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so embracing Christ was kind of the next step in their Judaism. It was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. They saw that and they embraced their Savior. A lot of the Gentiles who converted to Christianity in the early days were actually Jewish converts first. Sometimes they're called God-fears in Acts and, and in the other parts of the Bible. So they had adopted Judaism even though they were Gentiles, and then they became Christians, seeing Christ as the fulfillment of all this. So the overwhelming majority of Christians 
up until that first missionary journey were people who had a Jewish background of some sort. And so when all these pagans with no connection to Judaism skip the Judaism part and go straight into Christianity, the people in Jerusalem, some of them said, now wait a minute, they've skipped a step. They didn't adopt Judaism and then become Christians like the rest of us. And that's where the argument came in. They were, they were saying, look, these ones who came, these people from Judea, they weren't sanctioned by the church. They were just thinking this way. They went to Antioch and said, look, uh, there in the, the first couple of verses, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a really strong statement. They weren't objecting to the fact that they were Gentiles. They were objecting to the facts that they weren't circumcised, that they weren't being converted to Judaism first. When they refer to circumcision and the law of Moses, they're not referring to the Ten Commandments. That would have been taught, obviously, by Paul and Barnabas, that when you come to Christ, uh, you know, then you're, you're Christ and you live according to, to his, his law, his rules, uh, as a way to show your service and love to him. So when they refer to circumcision, when they say they must be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, what they're saying is that they need to follow the ceremonial regulations, the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. In other words, all those practices, the prescriptions about food, the way you dressed, about other practices as well, uh, circumcision, the, the, re, the religious rituals, you've got to follow all those things because that's what makes one clean and acceptable to God. So they're, they're mingling a Judaism and Christianity and not seeing that it's a, it's Christ fulfilled the law. He's the one they all, that this law pointed to. He's the one the ceremonies all pointed to. They, they missed that. And so they, they were basically saying, to boil it all down, in order to be a Christian, one has to follow a set of practices so that you can make yourself clean before God. You have to become a Jew to be a Christian. And now, as I said before, this is a watershed moment for the church and created a huge crisis in the church because this thing could go one of two ways. And I think John Stott puts it well. I've given you this quote on the outline also. He says, It was one thing for the Jerusalem leaders to give their approval to the conversion of the Gentiles, which they did a few chapters back, but could they approve of commitment to the Messiah without inclusion in Judaism? Was their vision big enough to see the gospel of Christ not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ as the international family of God? These were the revolutionary questions. In other words, the opponents of Paul and Barnabas and Peter were saying, uh, not all Jewish persons are Christians, but all Christians must also be Jewish. Paul was saying that the gospel is for every culture. So they have a meeting in Jerusalem to debate this question. Paul and Barnabas relate how Gentiles are coming to faith 
in great numbers, faith in Christ. And the Pharisees, the people of the Pharisee party, respond by saying that, yes, these people, it's great that they're coming in, but they've got to be circumcised and they've got to follow the ceremonial law, the clean laws. And do you see the parallels between their day and our day when you put the yoke on your neck and say, I've got to do this and this and this in order to be clean, in order to be right with God. If you want to be right with God, there are certain practices that you've got to engage in in order to become right with God. Religious works, you know, uh, uh, participating in religious ceremonies. People throw up all kinds of things you've got to do in order to be acceptable to God. The self-improver, the miserable Christian, have fallen into this same pharisaical way of thinking. My church attendance makes me clean. My morality makes me clean. My fill-in-the-blank makes me clean. Well, Peter's response is profound. We don't have time to break everything down that everybody said, but Peter's response really strikes at the heart of the matter. Look there at verses 7 through 11. Here we find good news for Gentiles, Pharisees, self-improvers, and miserable Christians. Anyone with a yoke of self-righteousness around their necks. What Peter says should, should mean something to you today. What makes a Christian a Christian? Peter's going to answer this question for us. And basically he's going to say, a Christian is a Christian by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I rehearse those words to you because they are obviously slogans of the Reformation if you know anything about the Protestant faith. You know, there's five solas. Sola is Latin for only or alone. Uh, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, glory to God alone. These are slogans of the Reformation. At that time and today, the Catholic Church was teaching something different. They would say, yes, you're saved by faith, but not faith alone. Faith that you must mix with works. I fail to see how that's different than what the Pharisee party was teaching here. They're mixing works with their faith. Works come as a result of faith. Salvation comes as a result of faith, and not, not faith plus works. Results in, I'm messing that completely up. Sorry. Salvation comes by faith, and then works are the result. That's the Protestant view. Catholic view is salvation plus works. I mean, salvation comes from faith plus works. If you want a diagram of that, I'll give it to you later. It's not coming out right. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, that's what we need in order to be a Christian. First of all, verse 7 tells us, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. They, they heard the word of the gospel and they believed. Faith alone. That's what saved them. They heard the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news. The Son of God came to earth as our substitute. He fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He died to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose victorious over death. That's the good news. 
that Christ, someone else, came and did that for you in your place. You don't do it. He did it so that you could be cleansed, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be acceptable to God and brought into His family. They heard this. They believed it. They put their trust in Christ. The old chair illustration. Everybody's familiar with that one probably. When I'm standing here, what am I putting my faith in? My legs to hold me up. My own effort. I'm standing. Faith is a transfer of trust. If I sit in one of these chairs up here, I'm no longer resting on my legs. I'm resting in something else to hold me up. I'm resting in the chair, the four legs of the chair. Faith is when you... What are you putting your faith in? What are you trusting in? When you put your faith in Christ, you're transferring your trust from, from your own works to Christ. He's the one holding you up. He's the one saving you. So they heard this. They transferred their trust from their own works and put their faith in the finished work of Christ. He's already done it for them. And they're trusting in that, not their own selves. Well, then verse 8 tells us, they heard the word of the gospel and believed. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. See, they heard the word of the gospel, they believed, and then the Holy Spirit came in. They spoke in tongues, just like they did in Acts 2. The same signs of the filling of the Spirit came to them as well. And if the Gentiles are good enough for God, then of course they're good enough for us. They, don't, they didn't have to become Jews in order for the Holy Spirit to fill them. They filled them on the spot. When Peter spoke to Cornelius and his household, and then when the gospel continued to go forth, the Holy Spirit came and dwelt in those who put their faith. And that's where the good works come from. The Holy Spirit comes and resides in us, and he starts to work in there. It's a, it's a reclamation project, kind of like on the home improvement channels you see. They come in the old broken-down house, and they fix it all up, and they transform it into something beautiful. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's forming us in us the image of Christ, knocking away uh, the, the old sheetrock and, and the leaky roof, and he's fixing it all up so that it becomes more in the image of Christ. Those good works that he produces are not your salvation. They're a result of your salvation. That's what I was trying to say before. Verse 9 tells us that God cleansed their hearts by faith. He continues that thought. Not only did the Holy Spirit come and dwell in them, but he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. They weren't cleansed by being circumcised. They weren't cleansed by eating the right foods. They weren't cleansed by washing their hands a certain way. They were cleansed by God, immediately, by faith, by putting their trust in him. It wasn't anything that they'd done that cleansed them. The cleansing came from somewhere else. It wasn't their own effort. Cleansing comes from Christ. No need to put your faith in some religious ceremony or your performance, how good or bad you're reaching a standard that you set for yourself. Salvation comes by faith alone, grace alone, by Christ alone. Trusting in Him is what cleanses your heart, and that's what matters. And then he talks about this yoke, which is where, of course, I'm getting the imagery from. 
Why are you putting God to this verse 10? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See, they were missing. What Peter's saying is they missed the point. All those ceremonies were meant to point us to Christ, and all those ceremonies were meant to point us to our own sinfulness and inability to be good enough for Him, and that we needed that Messiah that was promised. We needed a God who would be our Savior. We couldn't save ourselves. And instead, they took the ceremonies and turned them into a way to make themselves feel like they were acceptable to God. We do the same thing when we put our faith in some religious rite or in our performance or in any other thing that we might say, we are this, we act this way, or we're this type of person, therefore God accepts us. That's not salvation by grace. And then verse, it goes on. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's all of grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't work for it. You just accept it. It's a free gift. And it's not like a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. You know, a birthday gift, if you give me a gift on my birthday, I'm going to be grateful, but I'm kind of expecting you to give me the birthday gift. It's my birthday, after all. I'm going to be insulted if you don't give me a gift, maybe. For Christmas, you know, I'm expecting you to give me a gift. I'm talking about a gift you get on just any old random day when it's nothing special. When someone gives you a gift, that's really special. When someone, just because they love you, gives you something for free. It doesn't happen all that often. But it's happened with Christ. It's a free gift. It's not your birthday. It's not Christmas. It's just because He loves you. He's offering it to you. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. A gift, a free gift. It's lanyap. A little extra that you weren't expecting. It's greater than that, actually. That's what Christ has done for us. One thing I want to approach and and say before I close, James backs this up with some scriptural evidence. He quotes a passage from Amos and adds in a little Isaiah and Jeremiah, scriptural support for what Peter has said. And then they write this letter, and I know some of you will have questions about this letter, so I've got to say something about it. He says... uh, you know, we're not going to lay any burdens on you except that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That might seem a little strange to us in, in our day and time. But really what they, were, what they were seeking to do was promote fellowship between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles, you know, they would eat meat sacrificed to idols and not think about it. And Paul addresses that later and says it's not a big deal to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But in this early stage of the church, it was a sensitive issue to the Jews. And so they're asking, look, you Gentiles, be nice to us and and don't buy food uh, that's been sacrificed to idols so that we can sit down and have a meal together or food that's strangled or or has blood in it or, or of any of these particular things that are kind of repugnant to us Jews. And when it talks about sexual immorality, it's probably talking about Uh, like marrying a close relation, which pagans didn't have a problem doing. Uh, They would marry their brothers and sisters and things like that that were really, you know, 
how can we sit down and have fellowship with somebody when they're doing this? It's really repugnant to the Jews. So James and the others are saying, let's, let's get together. You know, we've been saved by grace. Let's make it possible that we cannot be divided and, and say, you have to have this yoke placed upon you. You have to be like us in order to come in. No, we don't ha- you don't have to be like us to come in. You're already in. God is the one that has decided you to come in. He's cleansed you, and we're all part of the same family. Let's sit down and have a meal together. Let's love one another and be the church. He's broken down the dividing wall. That's what that's all about. That's a little side bit. Well, if you're a self-improver today, back to our main theme, or a miserable Christian, you're feeling the yoke and the burden of trying to be good enough for God, you're wasting your time. Look to Christ. He's already done all the work for you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as we just sang. Or as Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's already borne the burden for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for this good news that we have. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to drop the yoke and trust in you, trust in your finished work. Lord, we pray that there's anyone here who doesn't know that grace, who doesn't understand what we're talking about. We pray that the Spirit would open their eyes and their hearts to the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have an insert in your bulletin.